and good morning. I like that shout out. I appreciate it. I do, I do. Welcome to Treasure in Christ Church. Um, we are so thankful to be able to be together. I invite you to open the Bible with me. We are in the book of Esther, the book of Esther, and we have been plugging through this book for um, a few weeks now, and uh, we are in chapter 6 of the book of Esther. And so as you turn there, I would uh, invite you to also uh, join me in prayer. I received um, a text from one of our community group uh, leaders yesterday that uh, a member of our church, Nick Smith, you might know Nick and Brittany, um, Nick was hurt in a sports accident yesterday, and he was uh, hospitalized. He had got a collapsed lung, and um, and so things looked like they were going well. And then last night, I get a text like 4:30 in the morning, and the lung had uh, dropped and had invaded the heart, and they said they almost lost him. And uh, so we were. Um, uh, I just wanted. I told her that we would put this before the church and that we would pray. Uh, actually. Um, at 9.18 a.m., I just got a text from Brittany, and she said that uh, his brother has come, and uh, she just says, I'm so thankful he's alive, and that God has sustained his faith. Things seem to be uh, going well now, um, but uh, just wanted to put him before us uh, as a church body and wanted to pray for him and for God to heal him completely. Apparently, it's extremely painful. Um, and they can't figure out some pain meds to solve the pain. So I want to pray for that, and then um, I want us to dive in to the book of Esther together. So let's pray. Father in heaven, I just want to declare how much I hate sin, and I hate the brokenness of our world. I hate that things are not as they should be. And I hate the pain that my dear brother is going through and my sweet sister is going through. And I pray right now that you would sustain them. I pray that you would encourage their faith, that you would protect them from growing weary in doing good. Father, I ask that in this moment, that you would draw near to them, and we ask that you would completely heal Nick's body. Father, we ask that you would remove this acute pain, that you would give doctors wisdom, or you would just supernaturally touch him, and you would bring healing to his body. Father, we also, with all the anxiety that can swirl around a hospital room, I pray for peace. I pray for the peace that passes all understanding to guard their hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And so, Father in heaven, we just pray that you would be seen as their great comforter in these moments. And now, Father, we get the privilege to open your word. Your word which matters in the midst of times like this. When things seem to be the darkest, we are tempted to think you are not at work. And we just want to declare and herald that you are at work. You are at work in and among us. And we say thank you. And so right now, Father, we just ask. We ask that you would be merciful to us as well by changing us and speaking to us and encouraging us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So God is writing a rescue story. That's just what he's doing. That story includes your life, it includes my life, and he is writing his story of gracious provision, and a story of perfect timing, and a story of just honor. Last week, my wife and I got the privilege to go to Sarasota, Florida to be with um, several from the TCT Network. It's the Church Planning Network which we are a part, I get the privilege of leading that uh, group, and as we were together, there were over 20 churches represented, there's 29 in the network, and there were 96 pastors and their wives all collided there to be encouraged and uh, to encourage one another. And so while we were there, um, and I was leading one of those meetings, there was a moment where we asked every, a representative from every church to stand up. 
and they stood up to tell if they were at work across the globe planting churches and watching God do work outside of the U.S. And so you had all these churches standing up and one by one they're just going story after story of how the gospel is going forth in at least 20 plus different regions of the world and it was just breathtaking. In the midst of all the war that we hear about, all the famine, all the corrupt political regimes, all the tragedies of that are going on all throughout the globe, there's this storyline that is continuing on moment by moment of our God redeeming and changing people. We had this one opportunity as we went out to eat together. We broke up into smaller groups of you know, anywhere from 8 to 20, some groups were. Went out to this one restaurant, and as we were sitting down, the guy who was leading our table, he just said, hey, could you tell us a story of things that have been going hard and a story of things that have been going good, where God had changed lives? Five churches were represented there, and every person, nine to ten people around the table, everyone had a story of how God had saved someone in and through their lives and in the church. There was this one story of a church in Rochester, Minnesota. And I can't remember fully all the details my wife and I talked about and tried to get as close as we could, but the story goes something like this. They were being sent out from a church in Minnesota to plant in Rochester. While they were there in this church that was going to send them out, a guy who they had been caring for ended up stealing their sound equipment in order to sell it for meth. As he stole the sound equipment, he got caught. And while he was paying for his crime, they continued to care for him. He ended up coming back to the church and apologizing for stealing the sound equipment. They ended up discipling and caring for him. He comes to faith in Jesus, and the story ends, at least as God is still writing his story, with this man going out as a pastor to pastor a church. And I was just like, hey, did you think about maybe offering him the sound equipment that he stole to try to bless his church? You know, and they, they said, no, we didn't think about that. But, you know, it was like God is writing a story, a story of redemption, a story of rescue. And it's happening all over this nation and all over the globe. He is saving souls. But there are times when we go through life, when we look at all of the difficulty that's in our home or in our neighborhood, or in our schools, or in our community, in our extended families, and it, and it seems like there's no rescue happening at all. That God's not at work, that something and only bad things are happening. I just want to encourage you. I want to encourage you that God is at work. He is at work right now, writing a story in your life and in our life as a church all for the glory of his name. And that story includes three things which I think we can see here in Esther 6. One, the gracious provision of God. Two, the perfect timing of God. And three, the just honor of God. The gracious provision of God, the perfect timing of God, and the just honor of God. Our God is at work. He's writing a story. And I just want to read Esther 6, 1 and pray, and then we'll dive in together. Esther chapter 6, verse 1 says this. On that night, the king could not sleep. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are the God of sleepless nights. Father, you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You are over everything. And you can be trusted. And so, Father, as weak and frail as some of us are, we just ask that you would cause to well up in our hearts complete surrender. Trust in you, in your timing in your love, that one day all wrongs will be made right. Sin will be no more. Suffering obliterated. 
And the King of kings will be seen in unfiltered glory. Father, I pray, please help us to enjoy you, to see you in the details of everyday life. We ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen. Amen. The first thing that we see in Esther chapter 6 is the gracious provision of God. The gracious provision of God. Esther chapter 6 verse 1 says, On that night the king could not sleep. What night? Well, the night that has just been described, uh, which follows all of these details from Esther 1 to now. So if you recall, Esther 1 has all kinds of crazy pride and investment in the ways of the world that lead Esther to be queen with King Ahasuerus, also known as King Xerxes. And in Esther chapter 3, it seemed like things were only could not get worse. They were going downhill quickly because an edict to kill all the Jews was decreed and it was irreversible. It wasn't something that could be changed. Sealed with the king's seal, genocide of the Jews was on the horizon. And things seemed to only keep getting worse as we look into Esther chapter 4. Mordecai hears of this plan He is weeping in sackcloth and ashes, and he reaches out to Esther and says, you've got to go to the king. The story continues that if anyone goes uninvited to the king, it is almost a guaranteed death sentence, and so she is at a crossroads. And it's at this crossroads where we find in chapter 4 where she says, I will go. And if I perish, I perish. It's these words of surrender. And as she goes to the king, what we begin to see is she stands in the court and the king can see her. We didn't know what was going to happen, but she was invited in. The scepter was raised. She comes and she touches the scepter. And you hear that the king says to her in Esther chapter 5 verse 3, The king says to her, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you even to half of my kingdom. And then she says, well, O king, if you would, I'd like to invite you and Haman to a feast. And so they have this feast together. They're merry with alcoholic beverage. And some of the guards are down. The king asks again, And says, what's your request, Esther? I'll give you up to half of the kingdom. And she says, would you come back tomorrow to another feast? Another feast that I will throw you. And then I will tell you, O king, what the request is. And you can almost see, it's like a cameraman who's got four different main characters that he's trying to shift between. Because that's the camera that's focused in on Esther. But now the camera shifts to Haman. And Haman could not be happier. Haman has been honored next to the king with a feast. He's drinking it up. And on top of that, he is anticipating the day that he will become the hero of his people. For years, his people, the Amalekites, have hated the Jews. And now he is going to be able to render the verdict that no one else has been able to render. The obliteration of the Jews. He's going to be the hero of his people. And he's looking forward to that day. So he's got extreme honor in the kingdom and his enemies will be put away. The camera's on Haman. But when you look at verse 9. It says, and Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart, but just like bitterness does, it can suck the joy out of you quickly. When Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, 
and that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. So as the camera is focused in on Haman, he goes from joy to anger and wrath because this Jew will not bow to this Amalekite. And so he goes home and he tells his wife and his advisors and they decide to create a great plan. The plan is this, we're going to erect gallows. Now, gallows you might hear as kind of this western idea, cross beam, noose hanging down of something where you hang someone. That's probably not how the Persians did it. The literal word for gallows is like tree. And so more than likely, we're looking at a massive beam, a massive post that goes up pointed at the end used to impale the person. So when you hear hang, more than likely, they were hung, namely impaled, on this beam. And so it stood 75 feet tall, six stories or so. And they did that in anticipation for the next day's feast. The camera shifts because why was he angry? He was angry because he saw Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. What was Mordecai doing there? Remember, he and Esther had created a plan. They were going to fast and pray for three days and three nights. And then he's sitting at the king's gate trying to figure out what's going to happen. Esther, the plan is Esther's to go in. Will she perish or will she not perish? And he's awaiting the verdict, the result. He's at the king's gate. And now finally the camera pans to one last character. It's the night after the first feast in anticipation for the second feast. And the king can't sleep. And as the king can't sleep, here's what he says. He gave orders to bring, this is verse 1, he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds and chronicles, and they were read before the king. This was a logbook, basically, of all the great things that have happened underneath this king's rule and reign. My wife teaches Bible for a living at a, a local school to 6th and 7th graders, and She said when she taught this, uh, she compared it to like a yearbook. It's basically he's looking back for his picture in the yearbook. Look at all the great things I did. Look at me. That's going to help me as I'm having trouble sleeping. Now, we're not sure exactly why he had trouble sleeping, but you could kind of imagine. You remember, he asked the question. Okay, Esther, you came. What is your request? She says, let's have a feast while he's. Mary with wine, he asked the question again because he's probably aware she didn't risk her life in order for a dinner date. Why in the world did she risk her life and now we're sitting here eating a feast? So I don't know what's keeping him up, but it could be the anticipation of this second day of feasting. What is the request that she's going to bring that was worth her risking her very life? And so, as he's reading this book, he just so happens to run across a story that we hear about in Esther chapter 2, where Mordecai just so happened to be sitting at the king's gate overhearing a murder plot of the king, if you recall, and he stops the murder plot. So, look at Esther chapter 6. He's reading through his yearbook, so to speak, these chronicles of all the great things. And it says in verse 2, And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. They sought to kill him. And so the king says in verse 3, And the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? He was not honored for saving the king's life. So let's just hit rewind a little bit. Coincidence number one. 
Mordecai sits at the gate, overhears a murder plot, stops a murder. Okay, whatever. Coincidence number two, the king can't sleep. Coincidence number three, he picks up the chronicle book to have it read. Coincidence number four, he just happens to run across Mordecai's name. When are we going to get it through our thick skulls that there's a God at work and we don't believe in this kind of idea of luck or coincidence? Our God is at work. His fingerprints are all over this. His gracious provision is what brings us. This thing preaches itself. This idea of all of these scenarios lining up so perfectly in order to bring the king to a place where he's ready to honor the greatest enemy of Haman. It is God's gracious provision. It is God's gracious provision. It's the surprise intervention into something that seems like it could not get worse. The beam has been erected. Haman is going to go in when dawn comes and plead for Mordecai to be impaled. Everything seems to be expedited. And in this moment, God holds the eyelids open to the king. He turns the king's heart like he does streams of water. The chronicles are brought to him. Looking through all this book, boom, Mordecai. Sweet. Whatever happened to this guy? Anything happened to him? Let's honor him. God is graciously providing. Our God is at work and he's writing a story. And I just hold it out to you. How many times have we been so tempted to look at natural phenomenon and just say natural, just say coincidence, and not say God? God, thank you. Thank you for intervening. Thank you for being in control. Thank you for caring for me. Thank you for your gracious provision. My mind runs to Psalm 115 verse 1. The psalmist says, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name. Give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. What is happening right here is the steadfast love and faithfulness of God is ramming its way in to the hard-hearted king. He's turning it like he does streams of water in order to rescue his people. Our God is at work. He is not asleep on the job. He is graciously providing for his people. Psalm 115 verse 3 goes on then to say, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. He does all that he pleases. He is not constrained by anything outside of him. He is God and he does all that he pleases. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 11 says, He works all things according to the counsel of his will. He takes counsel from no one. Everything that is in his heart, he is working all things according to his counsel. And that's what we observe here. It is the gracious provision of God where he is sovereignly working all things according to his plan. And before we move on to the idea of his perfect timing, I just want to lay out what, what does it look like for us to trust his gracious provision. What does it look like for us to trust his gracious provision? I was reading an article um, written by uh, a guy named Matt Rogers. He is at Southeastern Seminary, pastors in South Carolina. And he wrote this article called Living Decisively in a World That Isn't. And this article was really helpful in this idea of what does it look like to trust in the providence of God. Another way to talk about providence is Provision. It has the word provide in there. God's providence is God governing all things and providing and sustaining for his people. Therefore, we can trust him. What does it look like to trust in God's gracious provision and his providence? He writes this. As we ask these questions, what should we do with our life? Where should we go? Here's what he says. 
Where do you want to go? What do you want to do? What are you running after? I don't know. We have that. We get that. I don't know. What are we supposed to do? He says, on one hand, such hesitation, the I don't know, is valid. Surely no one knows what the future holds. We're told to seek his kingdom and not to worry about tomorrow in Matthew 6, 33 to 34. We're cautioned against projecting our plans in the future because it is ultimately his purposes that will prevail, James 4, 13 to 14. The future is not ours to determine. On the other hand, it seems that the reluctance of many to formulate concrete dreams and take strategic steps towards those aspirations represents the spirit of the age more than a trust in the providence of God. Ours is an age of indecision, relative affluence, unprecedented opportunities, and diverse possibilities that have become paralyzing to many. How can I choose when there's an unlimited array of options? He goes on, it's imperative that believers do not buy the lie that somehow decisiveness and trust in the Lord are mutually exclusive. We can both run hard after something we sense the world needs and we are gifted to accomplish and trust in God's providential leading of our lives and the ordering of our steps. This seems to be a major thread running throughout the scriptural narrative. And I think it's running right here. Can we trust our God? Hit rewind. Chapter 4 is Esther making a decision and acting. And she had no clue what the outcome was going to be. But convinced what was right, as best she knew this seemed to be the faithful step, she acted, trusting herself to the gracious providence of God. And so I hold it out to you. Are you like me sometimes paralyzed by indecision? Afraid that you're going to mess it up. When deep down our God says, yes, be prayerful. Yes, pursue me. Yes, get counsel. But yes, act. Commit your way to the Lord. Act. Act for the sake of your neighbor. Act. Act in love for your spouse. Act. As best you know, Take that next step and trust the gracious provision, the providence of God. As I was thinking about these first two points, it is the gracious provision of God and then the perfect timing of God. A story came to me to illustrate both. So this illustration is a suture. It's bringing together points one and two. And my mind went back to when we adopted our second child. Little Bear Bear, Justice Barraquette Cordell. As we were in the process of adopting him, international adoption is crazy expensive, way beyond what we could ever afford. So you take the step, and then you write a bunch of grant requests. <laughs> you write letters asking for help to give towards the adoption of a child. That's what we did, because... Unlike adoption in the States where you can go foster care and maybe get some income potentially, or at least it costs a little less internationally, it costs a lot more. So I'll never forget. We applied to a grant agency called Show Hope. It was run by Stephen Curtis Chapman. Those of you who grew up in the Christian world might know of his singing. We got the grant for our little girl Mercy when we adopted her. We thought we would get the grant for justice, and we were rejected. And we were like, stink. What are we going to do? We just were like, okay, that was a lot of money that didn't come to fruition. What, what are we going to do? You pray, and you just 
try to keep going at it. Next thing we know, I can't remember if it's my wife or myself that gets a call. I think it was her. And they called and they said, we've had a, a, an anonymous donor and she wants to give a grant to a group of people who were rejected from the previous grant in the month of April. We were rejected in April. I mean, it's like, how hard-headed do I have to be to be like, okay, that's God, okay? Rejected led to acceptance. And not only that, we got to talk a little bit more about our story as they laid out this whole idea. They flew us and our family to Nashville, Tennessee, to a grant a fundraising thing for these grants that they give out, and they asked us to share our story. So we share our story, and while we're sharing our story, we had a bunch of people that encouraged us, that was so helpful, etc. And that night, we went to a banquet. And as we sat at this banquet, we put our children in childcare. It was just Elijah and Jaden at that time. And after the event was over, we go to get our two boys out of childcare, and this woman says, I asked the Lord. If I saw you, that I should give you something. Okay. She said, I heard you guys speak earlier. And I just said, God, if you want me to give them something, please help me run into them. This place was filled with hundreds of people. It's not like five. Hundreds of people. We're there. She stops us. She says, wait right here. Okay. She goes out to her car. She writes a check. And she hands us, I think it was $5,000 for our adoption. So not only did we get a grant for around $5,000, we got this $4,000. My wife did the four. And then we got that extra money. And then while we were there, we met another couple who I knew from my hometown growing up who they said that they wanted to know a little bit what was going on. They ended up talking to their church and they gave us money all because we were rejected in the month of April. And all I have to say is God is writing a story for his glory. He's doing that. There's not one ounce of me that could have orchestrated that. God did that. God did that. It was his gracious provision in his perfect time. In his time. And what do we see in Esther chapter 6? Verse 3. And the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. And so, now's the time to do something. Look at verse 4. And the king said, Who's in the court? Oh, it's Haman. Now, Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on this beam, the gallows that he had prepared for him. So, Haman has this agenda. I'm coming in to get Mordecai killed. Like a six-story plan. It's out there. And the king saying, who's in the court? We see it's Haman, verse 5. And the king's young men told him, Haman's there, standing in the court. Just happens that at that time, Haman is there. God's perfect timing. So Haman comes in, and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman thinks, that's me. So I'm going to tell this king all that I want to happen to me because I deserve to be honored. This is the apex of Haman's pride and the apex of his delight. It is, I'm going to be honored in everything that comes out of my mouth and my greatest enemy is going to be hanging in just a little bit. It can't get any better. And so before we go to find out what happens, you just need to understand 
There is a God who is graciously providing in the everyday of your life in things that we're tempted to call coincidence and luck. And it is our God who is at work. And he is at work in such a way that will bring him the most glory and will increase your faith. And many times it feels like it's the 11th hour. Imagine this moment from Mordecai's perspective. He's sitting there waiting to find out what's happening with Esther. It seems like it's kind of dragging out a little bit. It was perfect timing. Perfect timing. In order that God would get glory that he is at work. I was talking to an individual in our church, dear friend, and they were selling their house. And as they were selling their house, they did not get offers for quite a while. And in today's market, that's a pretty rare thing. It feels like you can kind of get an offer pretty quickly in Raleigh. And so they were not getting offers. So finally, they were just like, okay, we're going to try to get renters in here because we've waited so long. We've got to get income. We've got to uh, move. And so the day after several weeks of not getting any offers, the day that they got a renter to say, yes, I want to rent this house is the very day that they got an offer on their house. So they did not go the renter route, and they went the offer route. Now, why would that happen that way? Why wouldn't it just be easy, easier in week one that the offer comes? If our God's in control of all things, why didn't it happen that way? It didn't happen that way because nobody can control a renter and an offer in the same day. You just proved you couldn't control it because you couldn't get an offer for weeks. God acts in perfect timing for his glory so that you and I will trust him. And many times it's the 11th hour. But when I think about perfect timing, I think about the cross. Isn't that how Paul described the cross in Romans 5, 6? For while we were still weak... At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. How long did the people of Israel groan for the Messiah to come? How long were they just waiting in anticipation for the Messiah to come and he still didn't come? God's description through the Apostle Paul is he came at the right time. He came at just the right time to die for sinners. And so, if the cross, as we stare at it, was at the perfect time to rescue humanity from their sins, then we can trust that he is still at work, sometimes covertly, sometimes behind the scenes, but he is still at work in his gracious provision, and we can trust that it'll be in his perfect timing. We are not smart enough to know what perfect timing is. Let's just be honest. We've got to surrender that. We've got to repent of that. Because the grumbling in my heart or the grumbling and complaining in our hearts most of the time comes in this one word, wait. We don't think it's happening at the right time. And God says, you can trust me. Esther is meant to be a story that says, stay with God, choose him daily, pursue him daily, Walk in obedience daily, be faithful daily, and trust him. Trust him in his provision and in his timing. Now, finally, what we see is the just honor of God. Not only the gracious provision and the perfect timing, but the just honor of God. So let's resume the story. What happens? Haman is asked in, chapter, in verse 6. Haman comes in. The king says to Haman, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? I can't tell you how many movies I have watched where you are just tired and almost angry at all the injustice that's happening. And it, you're almost anxious as you are watching only to watch the bad person get their just dessert. And this is what happens here. And I ain't talking about food there. Here it is. And Haman said to himself, 
Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? I mean, come on. Verse 7. And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor... Let's think. Okay. What would it be? Let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn. Like, the, 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 the power that robe came off onto the clothing, I want to wear that robe. Somehow, it's, that's how this is going to work. This, once again, just shows sometimes pride can really distort our thinking. Verse 8. Let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to the one, to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man... <laughs> Dress them. I want to be dressed by another. That's never really been a desire of mine, but here it is right here. Let, the, let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him. So now they're shouting out to everyone, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. And then the king said to Haman, Well, then Hurry. Basically, this is a great idea. Take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew. I bet he about threw up. That is not how he thought that was going to roll. I mean, I I mean the, the feeling and the emotion of that moment of just sickness, your heart falls to the ankles, everything that you, like, you are at the top. Like, I'm going to get everything that I've ever wanted, and it all comes crashing down with a sentence. Go give everything you just said to Mordecai the Jew, your greatest enemy. There is no greater verse to describe this than Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. He has just fallen. And that's how Esther chapter 6 describes it, because after he does all of this for Mordecai, which I'll read here in just a second, he goes ashamed, embarrassed, sad. Look at verse 12. Mordecai returned to the king's gate after being honored, but Haman hurried to his house, and he was mourning. And with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you've begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but you will surely fall before him. What we've just observed is the beginning of your great demise, of your huge fall. And that's why you read, and while they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast, the day two feast of Esther. And you just see the author writing this like, and here comes the fall. That's next week, okay? We'll get there, Esther 7. But God, I believe in this passage, wants us to delight in his justice and wants us to reflect on whom the one he honors. Who does he honor? The just honor of God. What does the pride sound like that led to the fall, that incurred the justice of God? It magnified the greatness of humanity. He compared himself to others made himself as greater. He was a grumbler and he was bitter at others. He was so confident in his understanding of how things were going, he could not be wrong. And yet he could not have been more wrong. All of these characteristics of pride led to Haman's fall. And that fall was a fall of justice, the justice of God upon the injustice of Haman. That 
sentence in Esther 6.10 is a sentence of great justice. Hurry then, Haman. Take the robes and the horse as you have said and do so to Mordecai the Jew who sits at the gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. Tim Keller says this in his book, Generous Justice. Justice is giving people what they are due, whether punishment or protection or care. It works both. For the unjust, it's punishment, or the unjust, it's punishment. For those who have been abused, it is protection and care. All of that is justice. And here you see them both. The provision of God to care for Mordecai and the punishment from God upon unjust Haman. The justice of God is on display. And let's just read it. I want you to soak it in. Let's just read it. Listen. He says in verse 9, Oh, I'm sorry, verse 11. So Haman took the robes. This is a long, drawn-out process where justice is being exacted with every action. Haman takes the robes and the horse, and he dresses Mordecai, and he leads him through the square, and he proclaims before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. The very man he has a six-story pole erected for right outside his house, he's now shouting, this man should be honored. The king delights to honor in him. So now that Mordecai does the, the parade, Mordecai goes and sits down at the king's feet. I can't wait to get to next week's story to finish this sense of justice, but I think God has us something to take away as we conclude. Some of us, we wrestle. We wrestle with this idea that I could imagine Mordecai wrestled with. Seems to be a change in Mordecai over time. It's a fight for faithfulness. And yet still, everything seems to be getting worse and not better. The psalmist seems to understand this in Psalm 73. Have you ever felt this way? I'm being faithful. I'm seeking to do what is right, but things still keep getting harder and harder and harder. Psalm 73 says, I get that narrative. Listen to Psalm 73, 1 to 3. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped because I was jealous or envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Why do they seem to get the promotion? Why does their bank account seem to increase? Why do they get the girl? Why, whatever, your desires, why, 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 why? Why did they make the grade and I studied harder? Why does it seem to come easier for them and harder for me? Why? I've thought to be faithful. Why? Why am I going through this suffering and their life seems to be easy? Why? This wrecked the psalmist until verse 16. 13 verses of I'm in pain because this is the reality I see around me. But here's what rescues him. The intervention of God. The gracious provision of God to remind him of something. And here's what it says. Psalm 73, verse 16. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went to the sanctuary of God and then I discerned their end. The justice of God is not always now. Even though in this story it came in Mordecai's lifetime, it doesn't always. What is our hope in the midst of longing for justice when you have been attacked? What is your hope in the midst of longing for justice when the evil seems to be winning and you're fighting to be faithful and you seem to be losing, so to speak, as you define losing? What is your hope? The end is your hope. Until I discern their end, which you could only discern when he was in the presence of God. So when it's personal, you say in Romans 12, 
Beloved, never avenge yourself. Leave it to the wrath of God. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you'll heap burning coals on the head. Don't overcome evil with evil, but overcome evil with good. How do we do that when we discern that God's justice will come? It will come. Sometimes in the moment, Esther 6, but it'll come in the end, in the end. Sometimes it's situational. Seems like everything is breaking around you. You trust him. You trust his gracious provision. You trust his perfect timing. He's taking care of you. He will not let you go. You can trust him. And so, when he says all that he says in Esther 6 to bring justice, he also brings not only justice to the unjust, but he brings honor. He brings justice in the other way, protection and care. What kind of person does God honor? Psalm 84 tells us, the Lord is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. I can't tell you how many times I've read that and said, I'm not upright enough. So of course he's going to withhold something from me. He defines what walking uprightly means by the next verse. Blessed, satisfied, at peace are those who trust in him. You're not upright because you've performed better than your neighbor. You're upright only by the grace of Jesus. You're upright and righteous because you have trusted in him. Who do you trust in? If your king is Jesus in all of your imperfection, repent of your sin, run to the cross, receive his love, and know that he is withholding no good thing from you. He is honoring you in the courtroom of heaven like Mordecai was honored on the earth. The robe is yours. The proclamation, you are mine, is shouted out over you. Zephaniah says he's even singing over you. Not because you measured up compared to your neighbor, but because you trusted in him. And therefore, you're upright. You're righteous in Christ. All the promises are made to Jesus. And so if you trust in him, you get all the promises. Dear friends, this passage is meant to drive us as believers to the cross. And to receive, by faith alone, the honor, the justice, the love of God for each and every one of you. So that then you can walk, trusting his gracious provision in his perfect timing. Let's pray.